This is Trepwire Week in Review for the week ending November 17th, 2023. I'm Haley Keen with Trep, a data modeling and analytics firm for the CMBS, commercial real estate, and CLO markets. I'm with Manis Clancy, Senior Managing Director, and Lonnie Hendry, Chief Product Officer. Investors got an early reason to give thanks this week as a benign CPI report sent U.S. stocks soaring and Treasury yields plummeting. The rally was widespread. In the equity space, shares of commercial real estate REITs surged, and in the bond space, yields tumbled at both the long and the short end. Manis, wow, what a week. There's just so much to unravel this week. We ended last week with the Treasury yield rallying, kind of stalling. Lonnie and I were talking about how there had been a dismal 10-year and 30-year auction interest rates, Treasury yields had moved back up, and we wondered if that was the end of the really sharp decline in Treasury rates that we had seen over the previous two or three weeks. Boy, was that not the case. CPI came out at 8.30 on Tuesday morning, and within seconds of that 8.30 Eastern Standard Time release, Treasury yields were plummeting. By the end of the day, the two-year, five-year, and 10-year were, were down by 20 to 25 basis points, uh, an extraordinary drop in Treasury yields in one day. That, at the same time, triggered a really significant rally in U.S. equities, and it coincided with a big spike in prices for REIT stocks that day. People were really enthused. At the same time, risk premiums really narrowed again that day. So borrowing costs between 8.30 a.m. and 9 a.m. really tumbled on Tuesday morning, and that was that was great news. Wednesday, we get a similarly benign PPI reading, but the reaction wasn't nearly as good. Treasury rates inched back up. Stocks were higher, but there was no exuberance. I guess a lot of the exuberance was front run after CPI on Tuesday. We also got retail sales early in the week. Those were better than expected, and September's numbers were revised upwards. So what we were looking at was a really Goldilocks-type conditions. Uh, On the one hand, Treasury rates were plunging. On the other hand, retail sales were doing better than expected. Today, Thursday, the 16th, rates plunged anew, and the 10-year was back below 450 again. So all of that, I think, has made the CRE market feel a lot better about itself, Borrowing costs are down 75, 85 basis points over the last three weeks. Um, We're seeing a slight pickup in deals. We'll talk about that later. And I think it's a generally good thing for the market. Certainly, it's a very good thing, rates coming down and risk spreads contracting. Yeah, I think you you knocked it on the, on the head there, Manus. The uh, the CPI stuff sent off a uh, rocket ship in the markets and really good on the borrowing cost side. And I think that's what we've needed. Like we've, we've kind of been in this perpetual state of unknown. And over the last couple of weeks, as you mentioned, treasury yields were not favorable. And so it's, it's good to see some optimism. It's good to see the markets being able to take advantage of that. You know, it's good to see the CPI headline number come in and, and basically signal that the Fed probably has done enough um, at this point. And so I'm hopeful that, uh, that maybe this give some optimism heading into 24, at least on the back half of 24, that um, the markets are going to have a favorable uh, year relative to what we've seen through 2023, which has been up and down. 
Um, you know, for some context, PPI was very similar. Uh, look like if you look at PPI on a yearly basis, headline PPI posted a 1.3% increase, which was down two point, from 2.2% in September. So I, I'm generally optimistic. I think this week has been good. You mentioned an increase in activity, you know, new deals coming on the market. I think that we'll talk about that as well. But overall, I think it's good. I The one thing that I do think it's, it's somewhat hidden is a lot of the, the headline CPI stuff. And when you start backing out energy, food, and some of uh, the core PPI numbers, it's a little misleading. Like if you go to the grocery store, inflation really hasn't come down as much as everyone would like you to think it has. Like the cost of groceries, the cost of other things are still higher than uh, than what we would like. Gasoline, though, on the other hand, at least uh, here in Texas, has been pretty much on the decline for the last couple of months. So I definitely feel like for mainstream consumers, you're seeing a little bit of pressure relief, um, which is good given that student loans have kicked back in and we're seeing some downward pressure on some of the consumer spending numbers as well. So the other thing I wanted to unravel in the beginning, which was, I thought, equally interesting to the CPI and PPI numbers, were the earnings from several major retailers that came out this week. So the three that I'm thinking of are Target, Macy's, and Walmart, and we'll, I'll throw in a fourth now, The Gap, which announced just moments ago after the close on Thursday. And let's peel back what we saw there. Earlier in the week, Target shares up 15% on a huge, huge earnings beat. When you scratch beneath the surface, however, what their CEO commented on was that the spectacular earnings were a function of really managing inventory and managing costs and not a function of the consumer. In fact, the CEO came out and said, the consumer is delaying purchases of non-essential items, healthcare items, essentials, food, clothing, et cetera, still very strong, non-essentials, not strong at all. Uh, he used the word deferring purchases. We move ahead to Walmart today. Again, a beat. Earnings were better than expected, but the CEO there used the term deflation, the belief that prices could be coming down and we could see a deflationary holiday season, not a word we've heard in the last 24 months very often. We follow it up with Macy's, again, a beat, stock up 5% today, again, on the basis of not strength of sales, but strength of inventory management. There too, their leadership said that the holiday sales may disappoint. Um, and then the gap after hours just blew by their earnings estimates, but they put out a warning that the holiday season could disappoint. So if you're a CRE owner, a landlord, you look at this at one of two ways. On the one hand, you love that your tenants are making money. That's a good thing. The more money they make, the better their financial footing, the more likely they're going to be paying their rent, um, and perhaps more likely they'll open up stores and keep stores in place. The downside is if sales contract to a level where we are talking about deflation, if we are talking about a consumer that's fatigued, if we're talking about weak holiday sales, the other side of that coin is the landlord sees these retailers closing marginally performing stores. So Lonnie, I gave you a lot of words there. It's funny, just earlier today, a judge took off the gag order 
for Donald Trump and his trial. You must feel like you have a gag order with how many words I've thrown out there over the last 10 minutes. I'm going to remove your gag order and you're free to throw in your comments as you see fit. Yeah, I appreciate that, Manis. And a lot of words, but good words um, in the sense that you're you're telling the story that we're seeing play out in real time. And, you know, we've had multiple podcasts where we talk about retail earnings and the large retailers you mentioned uh, not beating expectations and being hammered in the markets and dealing with supply chain issues and the lack of ability to manage inventory. And it seems like they've kind of gotten that part of the equation figured out, at least based on the reports this week. I think if you look at it macro, though, you know, the storm clouds are are approaching in the form of consumer spending less. So if you look at the BLS data, retail sales declined on the whole for the first time in several months. You know, you listen to some of these large retailers using terms that you mentioned, like deflation and other things, deferred purchases. I don't think those are the type of messages they want to be conveying heading into the holiday season. So I think there's definitely probably some pressure that's going to be put on the retailers. That doesn't even consider the theft component that we've talked about ad nauseum on the podcast. And so it'll be interesting to see how these retailers come out after the holidays and if consumer spending really is on the decline or if this was just a blip in the radar for people maybe worried about their student loans coming back online or having some you know larger credit card debt than they're used to and dealing with that in a short-term basis. But my vote is that this is probably the beginning of, of a real slowdown on the spending side. I think this is going to be probably the best that they have for the next couple of quarters. I think we're going to see a decline in consumer spending. And I think we're going to see some of these retailers start to feel that that downward pressure that they haven't felt really over the last couple of years. You know, another thing to consider this week, I know the unemployment claims number kind of jumped off the page a little bit. It seems like unemployment claims were up significantly. So you kind of marry those two together and it might be, you know, or might be on the front end of a, of a real slowdown in the labor market as well as the spending market. Yeah, it was interesting to hear these comments. It struck me as a little bit of dissonance and, you know, maybe this is recency bias, or, you know, maybe not, but Normally, when you see a surging stock market, and we've certainly seen that for the last three weeks, I think some of the indices are now within 2% of their 52-week high. It's been a great week. Normally, uh, we go back to the Bernanke wealth effect. I think it was Bernanke who coined that phrase. It could have been Greenspan. But this notion that when markets are up, people feel better, their 401ks are higher, and they spend more, that was certainly not... Uh, the narrative that was coming out of these CEOs this week. And and perhaps, you know, their quarter end was in a period when things were trending down, the market had yes to take off, um, interest rates were still significantly higher. So maybe they'll be changing their tune once the holiday season is over, we'll see. But I do think one silver lining out of this week was, um, I don't think I saw, we've talked about it a lot, you mentioned it, this theft word, shrinkage, et cetera. It seemed to be less of a, an emphasis of the CEOs in this cycle than it was three months and six months ago. And I I hope that's that's the case. Hopefully that's something that they've been able to uh, slowly but surely squeeze out of the system. Yeah, that would be my hope too. I guess we'll see after the holiday season if, if the theft is still a problem, I would assume that those numbers would pick back up during the holidays. So we'll see how, how that plays out. I, I will say, I think to your point on the wealth effect, it just seems like with some of the geopolitical stuff that's going on, there's just a heavier 
risk averse sentiment right now than maybe otherwise would be. And so I don't, it's hard to quantify how that plays out, but I know just anecdotally, there's been a lot of stuff on Twitter and on some of the news articles I've read where since October, um, there's been a dramatic slowdown across just some, some of the major markets, whether it be single family rentals, apartment rentals, other things where people are maybe being a little more conservative, just generally given some of the unrest. So you know, that may be a seasonal thing as things calm down. It's it's an interesting time in the markets. I mean, we're getting conflicting data every day. Um, and as we talked about last week, I don't know that either of us would have predicted this week to go the way it did based on what we had seen the last couple of weeks. And so it's interesting how things play out. Well, we could talk about the wealth effect a little bit more. Maybe Maybe we should as it pertains to the CRE market, right? What we saw this week, a big spike in REIT values, any early indications from you or any instinct? It's, there'll be no indications. It's certainly too early. What, what does your gut tell you? If you see some of these REITs with a price spike of 10, 12, 14%, do you think that lures in more economic activity? Do you think that there's guys on the sideline with cash which are saying, wow, we've hit that inflection point. We don't want to miss it. It's time to deploy. I think there's definitely a good chance of that. I mean, I think with the REITs in particular, and we've seen this play out on the downside, the public markets react sometimes very quickly and, and they go too far to the good and the bad. And so I would say they you would probably wanna see some short-term trend or sustainability two, three, four weeks of this before maybe it really starts to impact capital flows. But you know, at the same time, a lot of people could probably make an argument that the REITs have been under you know, trading at a at a lesser than actual value in the market because of public sentiment around CRE. So I think this probably definitely triggers some buying opportunity for some folks. And I think, you know, from my perspective, it's it's hopefully the start of a new cycle in the CRE, you know, landscape where for some markets, obviously they're still in the very front end of the distress. And we've talked about that with offices in LA, San Francisco, Chicago, et cetera. But across the broader market, Maybe the reality of this distress being a much smaller sample of the, of the overall population is starting to factor in. And if borrowing costs continue to come down and be more palatable, uh, maybe this is a, the kickstart to a good 24. Yes. And I hope this quality of life issue, you know, there's certain different types of quality of life issues, right? We have crime, we have drugs, we have homelessness and so forth. Um, you know, this latest round uh, which involves protests on either side of the conflict in the Middle East. You hope that this doesn't spill into violence and disruption like we saw in major cities two years ago. For people that are young out there that may think that it's time to put on your activist boots, there's a huge difference between free speech and intimidation. I hope that you choose the right path, which is stating your opinion firmly. But if you really want to do something productive, maybe a donation to the Red Cross to supply things to Gaza and to Israel would be a better use of your time than screaming at each other on the streets of Washington or New York or some of these other major cities where things are taking place. But I digress and my moralizing is over, Haley. You can go back to our regularly scheduled programming. Well, now I have to jump into CRE, so we'll, we'll try to make that transition here. Something else that we wanted to get into before we jump into our property type segment is our TREP property price index. This was a piece that we released this week. It's a measure of price movements for commercial real estate properties over time. 
So we put out our latest analysis from Q2 2023 data. Yeah, so it's built on our proprietary CRE transaction data that's uh, leveraging our own internal sales database as well as partner sales database. And we're using a repeat or paired sales analysis methodology. So just in total, we've calculated about 340,000 repeat sales since 2000. And we've added about 6,600 new uh, sale pairs in Q2 of 23. And so if you look at the report and, you know, obviously if you'd like a copy of it, you can uh, email us at podcast at trep.com. We'll be happy to uh, share, share it with you. Um, it has been picked up by a couple of the uh, publications in the market. So you may have seen it out there, but we've seen a continuous decline um, since mid 2022. So the index declined 1.8% in Q2 of 23. And if you look at it on a year-over-year -year basis, the index has declined 5.4% since the end of Q2 of 22. So, you know, this doesn't come as a shock to anyone. The reality is prices are still falling. The silver lining here, though, is that they're falling at a slower rate um, based on the most recent quarter uh, when compared to the previous quarter. So, you know, we're starting to see maybe some burnoff of the immediate interest rate hikes and other things that put a huge shock on the market. You know, we're starting to see a little bit of a normalization on the, uh, the sales price front. Lonnie, let me scratch me at the surface of this report to get your instinct on this one. When things are going badly, the stuff that sellers can sell sells, which usually means higher quality stuff. The stuff that they can't sell lingers. So you don't get these really negative comps. Any sense of is that 5%? Because 5% sounds very reasonable to me. It doesn't sound like a disastrous type of downturn that you would see when cap rates are up two or 300 basis points. Is some of this uh, adverse selection removal, is that part of it or, or is it too early to tell? Yeah. So I think since we're looking at paired sales or repeat sales, that probably reduces some of these one-off transactions that we've seen that were maybe forced sales or whatever in the current environment um, where we didn't have a previous transaction to marry that up to. So I think just in the methodology, since we are looking at a repeat sales index, like that is going to, by definition, carve out some of the market participants. And to your point, you know, in the initial downturn or disruption of a market, the better quality assets are the ones that generally are still able to transact. I would say though, I think if you're not forced to sell, you probably haven't sold. And so it's almost like some of the bank stuff that we've talked about just with unrealized losses. A lot of these buildings, the values are probably diminished if they had to take it to market, but they don't and they haven't and they won't until the market you know, rebounds a little bit. So I think this gives you a pretty good pulse of the market. But to your point, there's always going to be those single property transactions where the seller is forced uh, to take action because of a maturity or unable to service the debt, et cetera. And those are going to seem significantly lower if you looked at what that percentage uh, value decline was for maybe a most recent appraisal or something like that when the property was financed. I think that time factor is largely underappreciated as a metric for the likelihood of a property kind of muddling through. We've said this before in the retail space that if you didn't close the store during COVID, you probably love the store, right? You, your chances of closing it now that we're out of COVID is really small. I think that when we talked about CRE CLOs, we talked about all the interest rate cap pressure, buying new caps, 
how expensive that was, the cost of, of buying a cap, maybe a capital call that was involved. We're kind of now almost 18 months since the Fed started really aggressively raising interest rates. If that hasn't sunk you by now, it seems like there's a really diminished chance that that's going to you know sink you later. You know, perhaps you made your loan in 2021 and your cap is only now rolling off and and that would be an exception. You're only kind of facing the headwind now. But if you had caps rolling off in 2022 and early 2023, you've kind of weathered the storm already. And and maybe this is what's happening with commercial real estate in general. You might be onto something that, you know, cap rates have been expanding for more than a year now. Values have declined. And if you haven't looked to or been forced to sell something at this point, maybe you think it's going to muddle through. And maybe that will be part of the narrative we're talking about in 2024. Certainly, we can hope so. Yeah. I mean, I think it maybe turns some of these properties from having a 60% LTV at the previous origination to being like 80% this time. And if that's the case, you know, on the whole, the markets will be just fine. I mean, um, those are not desired outcomes, but those are not the kind of outcomes that have wide ranging impacts across the marketplace. This is all outside of office, obviously. I mean, I think office is its own class and has its own challenges, but for multi and some of these other markets where we had the perception of distress that was forthcoming, to your point, I think a lot of that might play itself out. I mean, I'm hopeful for the the sponsors, the the, the borrowers, the LPs, everyone involved in those deals that uh, that they survive and they play themselves out. I don't know about you guys, but you know, I see these commercials on TV for these vitamins you could take that make your mental acuity sharper than usual. You could take them, and all of a sudden, you know, you you don't have those senior moments anymore. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like today, Lonnie and I both took one of those pills earlier today. I think like we're on fire today. We sound so lucid and sharp. We're not talking over each other. And I think we make more sense than most other times. What do you think? This Haley? is not an ad for the pills. <laughs> I don't yeah, even I know the name of the pill. I can confirm. I've taken no pills today. Hopefully Manus didn't just jinx us for the rest of this episode, but I'm I'm feeling the vibe with him. I think we're uh, we're rocking and rolling here. Well, you guys will have to keep it up in the office segment, but I think some of the news might be interesting this week. I think one of your headlines, Manus, had the word dismal in it. Well, yes, articulate doesn't necessarily mean enthusiastic, so the two are not synonymous. You could be both lucid and downbeat at the same time, and this might be the downbeat part of the segment, although we do have some office green shoots, which we'll talk about. The headline that Haley was referring to, another dismal comp coming for the Chicago office market. This story comes from the real deal. The Jewelers Building in that town is a 550,000 square foot office at 35 East Wacker. The suggestion is that that could sell for only $39 million or about $70 a square foot. It's part of a foreclosure action that was initiated by John Hancock. The buyer is said to be Mike Reschke of Prime Group, uh, a trep flash that came out Earlier today, this is something that we put out for our Trepwire readers. The Washington Business Journal uh, noted that Hit Contracting will be vacating its longtime headquarters in Fall Church, Virginia. This is a little bit of a mixed green. The firm is developing a new 800,000 square foot project, which will become its headquarters. However, the property is now at 2900 Fairview Park in Falls Church. Uh, it is the sole tenant with 150,000 square feet. And they will be vacating that in 2027. 
Why did I want to talk about this story? Well, one reason is it isn't upsizing, which is the good news. The firm is outgrowing its existing space. The downside is it's the sole tenant in this property and it will be vacating in 2027. But it shows the value of seeing these stories take place years before they actually do. People that own this building or own bonds backed by this $30 million CMBS loan now have two or three years to either release this property or at least know that a problem is coming. Another trading alert we put out this morning, 1201 Third Avenue. Um, that property backs $150 million CMBS loan. The top tenant is law firm per Perkins Coey with 26% of the space. Um, the property is a 1.1 million square foot office. The law firm will be terminating its lease and will be vacating sometime in the next two years. The story comes from the Puget Sound Business Journal. Uh, the law firm will be moving to the Russell's Investment Center and downsizing from 300 square 300,000 square feet to about 150K square feet. Uh, in Boston, Foundation Medicine is looking to sublease a big part of the Seaport District's headquarters that they occupy. This is near Kendall Square. The firm is looking to sublease about 125,000 square feet of that 600,000 square foot office. Uh, in Plano, Cushman and Wakefield has been retained to market 330,000 square feet of space at 6100 Legacy Drive in Plano, Texas. Uh, the tenant there is Riata Pharmaceuticals. Riata was recently acquired by Biogen. And a couple of offices for which the value of the collateral was cut substantially. In New Jersey, Whitehorse Road. This is in Voorhees, New Jersey. The property was once solely occupied by Comcast. Comcast uh, vacated. The property was valued at $40 million in 2016. This month, it was reduced to just $5 million, a reduction of 87%. In Charlotte, the Charlotte Plaza, which backs $120 million CMBS loan, the value of that collateral has been cut from $186 million down to $89 million. Uh, this property has seen tons and tons of coming and going over the last couple of years. Uh, Grant Thornton vacated a couple of years ago. Uh, Lowe's had been in there. They went dark later. And the Charlotte School of Law also vacated later. So something to watch there. And lastly, in Dumbo, which is the district under the Manhattan Bridge overpass in Brooklyn, a property there was cut substantially. The property was valued at $640 million. The collateral is four office buildings totaling 750000 square feet. That property now is valued at $207 million, so a cut of about two-thirds. So a lot of moving pieces in the office space this Thursday. The last couple of stories there, Manis, where you're talking about significant reductions in the appraised value. I mean, this is indicative of what we were saying, having the office sector kind of carved out from the others. Um, these are not great stories, unfortunately. It, it, you know, some of the stuff was nice. It, it's nice to see some of the upsizing I think a couple of these subleases that are on the market, the one in Plano, it's on Legacy Drive, like that that property will see leasing activity there. That's a fast growing suburb of the Dallas market. But it's not great news for a lot of these other offices where you just continue to see 60, 70, 80% uh, declines in valuation. I did want to take a quick second. Um, I know you, you talked through a couple of our 
trading alerts and other quick hits in terms of our, our content that we put out for subscribers. And we have been working internally on launching a new CRE-specific or CRE-centric daily publication, and we launched that this week if you're a current client. So if you're a TREP client, you would have received a prompt to sign up for our new outgoing content. If you're not a client, you should uh, reach out to us so we can try to get you set up and get you access to this. So I don't know, Manis or Haley, if either of you want to give a little color on that, but I know it's something that we're really excited about rolling out. Yeah, we've teased it periodically over the last two or three months. We haven't really spent a lot of time on it, but the truth is that we could talk for four hours every week on the news we see in CRE. We try to limit ourselves to 45 or 50 minutes with a podcast, but we cover maybe 10 to 15 stories every week, but we could probably cover 80 per week in terms of sales transactions, subleasing, lease extensions, et cetera. And we decided we really could use a vehicle to inform the market on everything we're seeing that we don't get to in the podcast. And that was the goal. Trepwire historically has been our publication for market moving news on CMBS. And that remains in place. And that is our flagship and it will continue to be. But there's a lot happening outside of the CMBS market. And we wanted to use this opportunity, especially at times where people are trying to get more visibility into pricing, into cap rates, into leasing and subleasing to make the market as informed as possible. So we hope you like it. A lot of people here at TREP have really leaned in to make this happen. And we're very excited about it. Yeah, some people have requested or suggested a daily podcast. And while we can't give you that, we can give you a daily email alert with everything we're tracking and watching. So stay tuned for more on that or email us if you are a client or you want to learn how to become one. Unlock a historic mall investment opportunity with Spinoso Real Estate Group's proprietary platform. Their expert team excels in identifying unique opportunities and conducts rigorous due diligence. With a proven track record of operating over 86 malls and 74 million square feet, their turnkey operating platform is poised for strategic execution. Partner with Spinoso and seize this institutional historic opportunity. To learn more, connect with the Spinoso team at the Crefsey Miami conference this January. Okay, and let's kick it back to the green shoots in the office market. Yes, there are some and uh, happy to report them. Three really big ones here. The first is Boston Property has agreed to sell a 45% stake in two Cambridge Mass life science properties. Uh, the deal values the two properties at over $2,000 a square foot. Norges Bank will be acquiring the stake for $750 million. It values the two buildings at $1.66 billion. Coming out of COVID, we talked a couple times about life science markets starting to get overheated. We started to see some tenants give back space, make space uh, available via sublease. I think this BXP Norges deal puts that to rest, the idea that the life science market has cooled at all. Uh, the properties are at 300 and 290 Binney Street and will be occupied by AstraZeneca and Broad Institute. These are under development properties. In Houston, the owner of the Texas Tower at 845 Texas Ave has added two sizable tenants totaling 100,000 square feet. The news comes from the Houston Business Journal. Uh, the building is owned by Heinz. The two firms signing leases, law firm Clifford Chance with 60,000 square feet and Morgan Stanley Wealth Management taking 40,000 square feet. With those two, the property will now be 80% leased, good for Heinz. 
And in Philadelphia, I love this story. Speaking of tonics for the uh, office market, uh, the sales market got a big lift, according to the Philadelphia Business Journal. The Bala Plaza in Bala Kinwood, PA, which is one of the hardest things to pronounce if you look at it phonetically, it looks like Sin Wide, Bala Sin Wide. Uh, that 1.1 million square foot property sold for 185 million. That represents 168 bucks a square foot. The buyer was a venture between FLD Group and the Ajimi family. The seller was Tishman Spire, which which acquired the property in 2004. The neighborhood is a suburb of Philadelphia. So uh, some nice green shoots there. Uh, some leasing activity, a property sale, and a partial property sale. Good news. Yeah, that is a good way to close out the office segment. Great to see the activity in Houston. Uh, that market is either really hot or really cold. Um, hopefully this is indicative of some heating up there um, across that uh, that market. And the Boston properties, I know we talked a little bit earlier about the REITs and some of the challenges they'd faced this last year. Uh, Boston properties being a, a publicly traded REIT, great to see a couple of uh, green shoots coming out of that as well for them. And now onto retail. So a little bit of a mixed bag in retail. We'll go through this, I guess more good than bad. The one bad we have in there, this comes from BizNow, the top tenant at 505 Fulton Street, which is in uh, Brooklyn's downtown, not far from the Barclays Center where the Nets play. The largest tenant there uh, will be vacating. That's Nordstrom Rack. That comes just three weeks after TJ Maxx announced it would be vacating at that location. Both leases end in April 2024. That particular property backs $85 million in CMBS debt. And the two properties in total, they represent about 40% of the square footage, uh, but only 31% of the base rent. So uh, maybe this property muddles through. On to the really good stories in Asheville, North Carolina. Tanger Outlets paid $70 million for um, the Asheville Outlets in that town. $70 million represented 183 a square foot. Uh, the property is a 382K square foot property that will be renamed Tanger Outlets, Asheville. New England Development was the seller. The property is anchored by Sportsman's Warehouse uh, and a Dillard's Clearance Center. That latter property is not part of this sale. So uh, a nice sale in the outlet center space. And then next up, call this one coming out of left field, Washington Prime. The mall REIT that filed for bankruptcy two years ago has tapped the capital markets to the tune of $1 billion in new financing. They have arranged a loan to be backed by 38 open-air shopping centers, totaling 8.5 million square feet. In the retail space, some companies like Toys R Us and Sports Authority burn out. Others fade away like Sears and Kmart, but at least in channeling our Neil Young here, Washington Prime just keeps channeling on. So uh, good news there. Yeah, the Washington Prime story is kind of a shocker. You know, I mean, it was just two years ago that they filed for bankruptcy. I think, you know, you got to take this as a positive, I guess, in the sense that um, these lenders have a short-term memory. Maybe they reposition themselves. They have a better strategy and execution plan, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we're happy to see deals getting done at this point, especially in the retail sector. Um, but this one, you know, when you read the headline and then you read through the story, 
you know, lining up another billion dollars in uh, CMBS debt for a 38 property uh, transaction two years after bankruptcy. That one comes across a little bit as a shocker, in my opinion. The uh, the Tanger outlets, great news there. I mean, the Asheville market's been really strong over the last couple of years. And so to see a large outdoor outlet center trade for about 200 bucks a square foot is another uh, nice story for the retail sector. And for this week in our multifamily section, we actually have another analysis that we released based on our bank CRE data. Yeah, so for those that are not familiar, we have a data consortium um, that we manage of large institutions and banks that give us their balance sheet loans as, as part of a quarterly submission to us. We go through the process of anonymizing that data and then gleaning insights from it that uh, we then commercialize in the marketplace. And so we call that repository TALLER, which is an acronym for TREPS Anonymized Loan Level Repository. So if you hear us refer to TALLER on the podcast, we're talking about that proprietary data set that we have procured over the last several years and then really turned into a, a nice additional data source for us to, uh, to highlight what's taking place in the market. And so in this analysis, uh, part of the anonymization, part of the standardization that we do of the data is we actually create a standardized risk rating for all the loans that are submitted to us. And we array those from one to nine, one being lowest risk, nine being the highest risk. Um, and anything above a six is considered to be a criticized loan. So in the analysis, this, this most recent analysis, we focus on only multifamily loans. And we use that aggregated loan level data to evaluate loan risk by by Metro using the percentage of criticized multifamily loans. So we looked at 10 MSAs and uh, with the largest outstanding balances of multifamily loans in the data set. And so here are some takeaways. I won't give you all of them because we would like for you to get a copy of the report, uh, which you can get by emailing us at podcast.trep.com or by signing up on our website. Uh, the New York Metro had the largest drop in criticized loan percentage for the multifamily bank held loans. The perceived risk of multifamily loans in this region soared during the pandemic, and just for reference, peaked at about 31% in Q2 of 21. So that would mean um, as of Q2 of 21, 31% of the loans had a six or higher on the risk rating. Um, since then, the criticized multifamily loans has dropped off significantly, most recently showing 16.3% in Q2 of 23. Uh, we have several other bullets here if you just compare this to the CMBS side, uh, the multifamily delinquency rate in the New York MSA sits at about 3.6%, and 10% of the current, current CMBS multifamily loans in the New York MSA have a debt service coverage ratio of less than one. And 16.4% of the CMBS loans are on the servicer watch list. Um, so a lot of really deep insights here. We do some nice analysis comparing the taller data to the CMBS market, et cetera. Um, if you have any questions, and I know Haley mentioned if you wanted to see some of the product or, or potentially sign up for our services, this is indicative of the type of data that we have. You want to know what's on a watch list, how many properties are being specially serviced, how many properties have debt service coverage less than one. Um, these are the type of things that we track across the nation, across the property types, and we'd be happy to showcase that for you as well. And a few programming notes. We have some webinars coming up in... November. So the first one will be a special Thanksgiving edition of our Market Pulse webinar where we'll be giving thanks to multifamily and digging into any and all of the news and the data there. So we haven't sent out this invite yet, but send us an email to podcast.trep.com and we'll send you that link once it's available. 
And then we also have a big targeted training for our CRE clients. But if you're a client, you would have gotten that invite this week and you still have time to sign up for the training to learn about all of our new enhancements. And that will be on November 28th at 3 p.m. And then if you're on the Retweet community or you are on Twitter lurking, you may have seen this, but this week Strip Mall Guy announced that we will be taking part in his real estate gala event that he hosts in April with Bob Knackle. So we'll be recording live at the event. We'll be meeting experts from across the industry in all different areas and interviewing them. And then we'll also be producing a podcast out of that. So whether you're at the event or you are just a listener, you'll get the benefit of hearing interviews from all of these experts and getting some of their takes on what's happening in the market or what will be happening in the market in April. So this is a tuxedo event. Lonnie, I'm going to give you some uh, free advice. The best way to go to these events is to show up like Tom Hanks in big with that big white tux and the tails in the back and the big fluffy shirt. You will be a big hit. And you eat that little corn thing that comes in a salad, you know, with your fingers. That's the uh, that's the way to go. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm contemplating. Uh, do I just rent a tux? Do I rent a tux here in Texas and travel with it? Do I try to get something set up in New York? Logistics. I'm have to figure this out. I may need some help from Haley and the rest of the crew to make sure I show up wearing something that's appropriate. But I'm definitely looking forward to this. As Haley mentioned, this is going to be a great event and we're really fortunate to be part of it and uh, really looking forward to what's going to come out of it as well it's going to be a really really great time yes so thank you to shirt mall guy and bob knackle and just a reminder we did have special guest episodes with both of them a few months ago so if you haven't heard our interviews with the two of those experts you can go back and listen to them and turning to shout outs we had a lot of people reaching out this week which was great Aaron A. is a big fan of the pod and has listened for about a year and a half now. And as a developer, it's been helpful to follow the debt investor's perspective through our program. Zach A., Patrick M. are big fans of the podcast. Bill M. wanted to let us know that he's been listening for years religiously and loves the pod. He said he's actually, this might be a first for us, he was currently listening to the podcast as he was up in a tree bow hunting for deer. He said Minnesota things. So we've gotten walking the dog. I think we've gotten swimming, but hunting is maybe a first. So we hope you had a successful time, Bill. And we owe you some of our coverage and exposure on the Meridian Capital News. So more to come on that. Mike L. reached out and he said he is looking for a t-shirt. So we'll send one your way, Mike. Thanks for your feedback and sending us a note. Rahuk S said they are listeners of the podcast and enjoy the information we provide each week. Mike M. wrote to us from across the pond in London. He said he's been listening for a year now, and it's been wonderful hearing about the market developments in the U.S. and drawing comparisons to the U.K. and, the, and Europe as a whole. And then Mike actually sent us a story about what he's watching in the market, so we'll touch on that next week. Thank you for sharing that. Andy B. said he officially got his Trep Insights account working, so he's not only a loyal listener, but also a subscriber now, so that is awesome to hear. Frederick C. reached out about our WeWork analysis and told us to keep up the great work. Timothy M. said we're a must-listen podcast. And Randy W. reached out to you, Manis, to talk to you about the OAS program that we mentioned last week. Yes, he and I are going to get on the phone tomorrow morning. I'm looking forward to this. I hadn't thought about OAS in a long time, but it was really cutting edge when it was first developed back in the day. 
Uh, it stands for Option Adjusted Spreads, and it is a, a Monte Carlo simulated set of uh, cash flow projections based on Monte Carlo simulated interest rate walks and so forth. And I'm excited. It's uh, it, it's going to be uh, interesting to see. And Rusty R and his industrial team reached out. They are huge fans, and they said this might be a tall order, but can we get six podcast T-shirts? So we'll see what we can do, Rusty. But thank you for reaching out. And Selma A posted your quote on LinkedIn Menace that if you didn't know WeWork was coming, you maybe shouldn't be in CRE. But she also sent us a note on the 230 Park Ave and Harry Helmsley. Yes, I talked about the building last week. The building went into special servicing or the loan on the building went into special servicing. And I made a remark about Leona Helmsley, who got a reputation as, as one who treated her employees very badly. And Selma wrote in, rightly so, calling me to test for not pointing out that her husband was a really iconic developer in New York City. The projects he did, the beautiful both residential and office and hotel buildings that he did throughout Midtown and elsewhere in New York really have stood the test of time. And uh, he's on the short list when people think about people who grew this city from the 60s, 70s, and 80s on, and uh, certainly an oversight on my part. And Raphael G. recommended our podcast on LinkedIn. And on Twitter, we had both Revan Capital and Darkfire Capital actually send us pictures of themselves wearing their new podcast t-shirts. So thanks for sharing that, guys. It's great to see you guys representing all across the country. And then a few other shout outs from Kenny P., Mark S., Anna S., and Nick A. And Haley, I know we've had a long list of uh, shout outs, but I just wanted to give a few. I had a couple people reach out on LinkedIn this week and send some really nice compliments about the podcast. So Bragg S, Jonathan S, and Tyler H, we appreciate your support and we appreciate your listenership. And uh, thanks for reaching out. And before we close, I was about to ask you guys what your favorite Thanksgiving dish is, but I forgot that we still have next week for that. So for our listeners, we will be recording an episode on Thanksgiving week because we never miss a week here. We will probably be recording a little early in the week, so most likely on Tuesday or Wednesday morning, but we'll give you guys something to listen to on your long drive or your travels to go be with your family. I might make people like a little bit sick right now with my remark, but to my kids' utter horror, one of my favorite things on Thanksgiving is this dish called ambrosia, which is oranges and pineapples mixed with mayonnaise, coconut, and sugar. And it is delicious, and it's one of my favorite meals, but um, <laughs> feel free to weigh in on the other side oh, if boy. you're a big fan of the ambrosia. It was is that a, a only meal... a Thanksgiving meal for you, or do you make that as a snack? Well, I would eat it four days a week if it was socially <laughs> acceptable, but... Uh, I don't. I only eat on Thanksgiving, but it's been a staple in my family for about 40 years. And uh, uh, I, I can never get enough of it. I got to admit. Uh, I will not be partaking in the ambrosia. I'm a true mashed potatoes girl over here. <laughs> but no judgment, Manus. You're okay. Yeah, no I'm judgment. sure you'll have yeah, no listeners who, who accept you for that. I thought that was like the jello dish, but mayonnaise and sugar, that sounds even better. It's possible it's sour cream. I got to go back and look. Maybe it's not mayonnaise, but it's one or the other. <laughs> and with that, we'll close. Join us next week as we look at what's happened during the week and how it may be impacting you. If you have a question or just a comment, send an email to podcast at trep.com and subscribe to the Trepwire podcast with your favorite provider. Thank you for listening and stay well. All right.